Well, good morning. Thank you. Uh, uh, it's good for my self-esteem when you do that. Uh, we're dismissing children for Children's Church. They're going to be uh, they're going to be thinking about similar things in ways that are aimed at their level and appropriate for their level. Um, we are reading from a book of the Bible, James, uh, James the Epistle of James. Uh, some of the section in your uh, bulletin is in italics. I'm going to read it, but we put it in italics, just reminding you that it was part of the uh, the sermon in a couple of past weeks. Um, so we're not going to be focusing on it, but we'll reference it, and it sort of forms a unit, so we'll read it together. It's sometimes said by people, perhaps well-meaning, they might say, uh, you know, I'm not really religious, but I am spiritual. Or sometimes even very well-meaning Christians will say things like, you know, I'm not into religion, I'm just into relationship. Now, we can define those words a lot of different ways, and what people have in mind could vary a lot, but if you ask James what he would thought, what he would think, he would say that's nonsense. Because when James thinks of religion, he thinks of the appropriate response to God's word, to the revelation of who God is and what he's doing. And James, as we see in this passage, has a real concern for true religion, true practice, a true response, true actions that reflect who God is and what he's done. Let me read the passage and we'll talk about it together. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 18 to 27. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart and that this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, several weeks ago, we talked about James, the concern James has for hearing and doing, and the way in which receiving God's word with meekness begins to change us on the inside. I argued that the posture of receiving God's word with meekness challenges our attitudes of control, that lead to quick speaking, not listening, and anger. I said at the time that what I intended to do as we move forward is to look outward. And so in this passage, we see the concern that James has for a hearing that causes us to live and act differently. And he warns us that it's possible to deceive ourselves. We can think we're hearing when we're not really hearing. There's, after all, there's more to listening than simply noises and vibrations hitting our eardrums, right? So I'm going to begin with a confession. 
that uh, I'm not always a very good listener. Sometimes this is just because I'm distracted. Uh, my wife is secretly nodding her head, not so secretly nodding her head right now. It's true. But sometimes in my life, it was actually more willful than that. When I was a high school student, I was not a good listener. In, in fact, uh, in my desire to do what I want in my way, in, in my timing, I developed a, a, a fairly a sophisticated plan of hearing my parents and promptly ignoring whatever they said. I realized I couldn't win these fights, um, and my heart was rebellious. I, I was uh, determined to do my thing. I'm not proud of this. And so I developed a practice of simply nodding and looking and pretending like I was listening and then doing whatever I wanted. Uh, I'm not proud of this. Later, I did grow up, and I realized this was not a mature response to things. But if my parents wanted me to do something and didn't want to do it, I would just nod my head and say yes and do what I wanted. I hope my kids aren't listening now. This has certainly come back to haunt me in later years. Well, teenagers do this until they grow up and get mature or maybe are already mature enough to realize it's a childish response. But James is pointing out in this passage that it's not just a surly teenager that might have this problem. Rebellion runs deep in the human heart. We don't like to be told what to do. James casts before us a scenario where a person in their religious life, in their spiritual life, could cultivate a practice of hearing God speak, nodding, giving a form of assent, and then doing what they want. James warns us that we cannot be hearers without being also doers. The words that God gives us are not only words that tell us who he is and what he's done and the incredible gift of life that comes through Jesus Christ, but they are words that call us to live differently. They are words that call us to action. According to James, true faith is a living faith. When we receive his word with meekness, we are changed by it and what we do is different. I want to look at three things in the passage today. First of all, we'll see James' argument for hearing and doing. He'll tell us that receiving the word means living differently. Secondly, we'll see that James is not content to be theoretical, but he presses it down into the everyday stuff of life. He gives us three practical examples for how a Christian should do differently. Third and finally, we'll consider this in light of the gospel and ask, how does this help us to know Jesus? How do we encounter Christ in our religious practice as we push after true, what James calls true religion? So first of all, receiving the word means living differently. James has had a concern now for several verses, we've seen over several weeks, for hearing God's word in a way that changes us. In fact, he tells us that the message of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that came through his redemption is a message that can save our souls. In verse 18, James told us that we were brought forth by the word of truth. What he means by this is that our very religious experience, our, our, our coming to know God and be awake and alive spiritually came through the word of truth. We heard a message, we believed, and we were changed Later in verse 21, we saw this uh, when we last were in James two weeks ago. He says that when we receive the, with meekness the implanted word, it is able to save our souls. There is a message that we receive 
that, that saves our souls, James tells us. Now, you might be asking, what is this message? I've already briefly sort of highlighted it. But if you had your Bible open and you looked at the very next verse, chapter 2, verse 1, you would hear this. James says, he warns them against partiality and he tells them to hold to their faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so it tells us in the context that the message, the word that saves us, is very clearly a word about faith, a word that calls for faith or trust, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, he packs a lot into those titles, into those things. The, uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew is one that reminds us that Jesus was named Jesus because he had a mission to save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means. It means God saves or the Lord saves. But when he gives him the title, the Lord of glory, he's telling us something else. Not only is Jesus the Savior, the one who through his life and his death and his resurrection brings forgiveness for all who trust in him. Not only is Jesus the Savior, but he is the Lord of glory. He's applying to Jesus a title that would otherwise only be given to God himself. He's telling us of the divine nature of Jesus and his position now raised to the right hand of God. He is ruling and reigning. We know Jesus as Savior and as Lord there's a lot packed into both of those things. And sometimes it's tempting for Christians to ask the question, well, if Jesus saves me by his work, all what he did for me is the thing that saves me. Does it really matter what I do? Whether we know it or not, we might be asking the question, can Jesus be my savior? Can I, can, can I keep the Lord part optional? Well, that's the concern that James has in this particular passage. He knows that if Jesus the Savior is the Lord of glory, when we really receive the word of truth, it'll change what we do because we've responded to Jesus as Lord. If we hear that message and believe it, it will change what we do. There are many ways in which we could go wrong on this. The Bible is concerned in other places about other ways. But the particular concern that James has is that we would be a people who are deceived into thinking we could hear and not do. That we could hear a message of the lordship of Jesus and think, I'm still going to run my own life, I'll do it my way. So he tells a story. He gives an analogy in verse, uh, verse, verses 22 to 25. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. They have to be hearers. They start as hearers, but they move beyond being just a hearer and become a doer. If you do that, James says, you're deceiving yourselves. And there's the analogy, verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now the analogy is not immediately as helpful for us as it may have been in the ancient world. And part of the reason is our, our mirrors are different. Uh, we are surrounded by so many mirrors and pictures and selfies and, and portraits that we encounter our, our face in a lot of different places. If you lived in the ancient world, you wouldn't have had that luxury or depending on your countenance, that curse. I sometimes wish I didn't have to see myself as much. I think, oh, shoot, my hair. But James says, wouldn't it, isn't it, doesn't it seem remarkable that a person could look at their own face 
and forget what their own face looks like. It was probably easier to do that in the ancient world. Now, the contrast that he, he has here, the comparison, is between the practice of looking at your face and looking at what he calls the perfect law. So in, in the ancient world, what, what scholars tell us is that what they had were not exactly mirrors, but a highly polished piece of metal, perhaps, and that the way it would be uh, used is not necessarily putting it on the wall, but putting it on the table. So you might sit over the table and look at your face, look into the reflection of your face. And usually you would respond by adjusting something or doing something and making an alteration, perhaps. But he creates a scenario here where he compares that situation, a forgetfulness of what we look like, to the process of looking into something else. And the thing that he describes here is what he calls the perfect law, comma, the law of liberty. He says, isn't it an amazing thing that a person could look at their face and forget what their face looks like? How much crazier is it that you could look into a description of what a person is meant to be? The law of God, the law of freedom, the perfect law. You could look at it and then walk away and act as if you had never seen it. That's the point that he's making. And again, the sort of the mere analogy is a little bit challenging for us. But the point is really clear, isn't it? Looking, forgetting versus looking and responding. The one who perseveres is blessed in what he does. Now, you might be asking the question, what does James mean by the law of liberty or the perfect law? Later, in the next chapter, he'll also refer to what he calls the royal law. Clearly, it's the same thing that he's thinking about here. In shorthand, we could say James is thinking of the Old Testament law as it's fulfilled and transformed in Jesus. Those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, the law of Moses, would recognize there are significant parts of that that James doesn't bring up. He doesn't put upon the people the obligations of the ceremonies and the food laws, and he doesn't apply to them all the regulations of the land of Israel, the civil law. But in many ways, as Jesus took the law himself, fulfilled it in his life, and transformed it in his teaching becomes what James is calling the moral law. In fact, James is most similar in his teaching, actually, to the teaching of Jesus, particularly in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus takes some of the Old Testament law, the moral precepts, the Ten Commandments, for instance, he takes them, and not only does he not push them away, but he, he, he transforms them and makes them deeper. Jesus says, you heard it said before, you shall not commit adultery. But I say, when you lust in your heart, you've broken the commandment. He he intensifies the command. He highlights our call to love God and love our neighbor with abandon. Jesus also had a habit of talking about being blessed. Language that James picks up here as well. In his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins by saying, blessed are those who... Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are you when when you um, when you respond to what what uh, God calls you to do. This is the theme that James picks up here. In a sense, grabbing hold of these commands as he's received them through Jesus and applying them to his church. 
Blessed are you when you hear and when you do. Again, it sounds so much like the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. And yet, and yet James knows we can be deceived. We can get it wrong. We can go the wrong direction. We can be deceived into thinking, you know, it doesn't really matter. Jesus is gracious. He did the work for me. What does it matter if he's my Lord? I, I grew up in a church setting that tended to be very lax in its concern for Christian discipleship. There were wonderful Christians I knew in my home church, but by and large, one could attend for long periods of time and get the general impression that obedience to Jesus was merely optional. It was what we might call cheap grace. We could hear all sorts of things about how God was loving and kind and good and gracious, but rarely be confronted with any command from the lips of Jesus or anyone else that called us to do anything differently. I was talking about it this last week with Joseph, and he said, you know, I had exactly the opposite experience growing up. I grew up in, in a church setting where we were always told to do things and never promised God's grace. If I grew up in a place where we were tempted to be hearers and not doers, he grew up in a place where you were called to be a doer but never hearing a message of grace in the Lord Jesus, a message that saves your soul. There are many ways to be deceived, but I suspect that maybe one of the ones that James had in mind, though he doesn't say it explicitly, is a deception that teaches us that responding to the commands of Jesus, the royal law, the commands of God, that responding to these things leads to a life of confinement, dryness, misery. Maybe in your heart of hearts you would recognize that deception lying there as well. If I, if I really respond to God, if, if I really get serious about a bang, that means all of the fun stuff goes away. And I just start to be something like an angel on a cloud with a harp and a white robe. That sounds pretty boring. But what James tells us here is that the law, the perfect law, is actually a law of freedom. A law of liberty. That the God who gives us commands is the God who made the world. That to live in his commands is to flourish in alignment with the systems that he has as we live out our love for him. James wants us to know that living in obedience is living according to the law of liberty. The perfect law. Learning to do what is truly good. Not just what we want in the moment. Well, as I said, James is not content to end there. He doesn't end with just the theoretical, but he presses on to the practical. As we go into the next paragraph, we see three ways in which James calls us to live differently. The second uh, section today. And he, he lists three things. It would be easy for us to say, yes, yes, not along, and say that's all very good. We should be here, doers and not just hearers. And then James says, okay, here's your test. He gives us three things. First of all, he says... Uh, true religion, or that is the practice that follows belief in Jesus as Lord and Savior, true religion has something to do with how we talk. That's incredibly practical, isn't it? Even the most introverted among you still talks quite a bit. Whether it's with your words or the things that you type, your communication, your words have an awful lot to do about what's going on inside your heart. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
And we are warned in the Bible that we'll be judged for every careless word because we know that words hurt. They have an impact and they affect people. We sometimes say sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will never hurt us. Those of us with enough experience in life know that's not true. Words can stir up terrible, dangerous things. Words can harm. We live in a day and an age where the belief in bridling your tongue does not seem to be held in high regard. A a bridle was used for an animal to steer and direct it. Without a bridle, a horse could be quite dangerous. A horse unbridled in a crowd would trample on people with tremendous weight or kick them and cause harm. But a bridled horse is powerful and ordered. James says, bridle your tongue. We live in a day and an age where some of our most visible figures from our highest elected office to our late night comedians and talk show hosts model a form of unbridled speech that harms. We're tempted to believe in how we talk to our friends and followers on social media that when we get the zinger that flattens someone, puts them in their place, that we've accomplished a good. James says, true religion bridles the tongue. Is your tongue bridled? He has a second concern. He says, true religion cares for orphans and widows in their distress. Now, what we know here is that James is, again, drawing on a rich Old Testament teaching. If you were to go throughout the Old Testament and type in these words, orphans and widows, you would find them appearing again and again as a sort of exemplary illustration of how we care for those in need. In fact, there's three and often four things generally paired together in the Old Testament. Orphans, widows, foreigners, and the poor. We, we can see them in lots of different places. In additional scripture on your insert today, we see a reference from Zechariah chapter 7, verse 10. This is typical Old Testament teaching. Do not oppress the widows, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you, dis- uh, you devise evil against another in your heart. What's happening here is that uh, James, following the Old Testament tradition, is taking examples of people that were particularly vulnerable. People that could easily be hurt. People that didn't have a lot of ability to defend themselves or to care for themselves, who when they were in distress would lack resources to be able to alleviate the problem. What James is telling us, in a sense, is drawing from this rich Old Testament history to say, True religion cares for the vulnerable and the needy, the orphans and the widows, the foreigners and the poor. In his letter as a whole, James references not only the orphan and the widow, but regularly turns his attention to the poor. And he begins his letter by telling his recipients, you are foreigners dispersed in foreign lands. The full range of Old Testament teaching is applied here James, as he does it, picks up not only these themes, but picks up the language of Jesus himself. And when his teaching tells us in Matthew chapter 25 that the identifying feature of his followers is that they have cared for the least of these among them. There are many ways in which we do it. Perhaps you think first and foremost about how our 
social and political policies reflect these principles. And certainly you're right to do that. You have the responsibility on your own to think through how these biblical principles affect the way in which you think about policy, politics, and larger social principles. I can't do that for you. That's your responsibility. But what I'm particularly interested in thinking about today, the thing that James is particularly interested in thinking about today is the way in which our own individual lives reflect a commitment to care for those in need. How are the needs of the mother, the unborn child, or the family after an unplanned pregnancy cared for by the church? How are the needs of foreigners in our midst or refugees beyond our borders reflected in our concerns, our thoughts, and our prayers? How are we thinking about the needy in our neighborhood and in our city? Are we taking action in our lives? Sometimes that might mean we gather together to do a project as a church. We do that from time to time. Our Sunday school class has been working together on the Foster Love Project that as a church together we would support families that are caring for children in need in our congregation and beyond. But I'm most encouraged by the people in our midst to carry the torch in their daily life who serve sacrificially, opening their homes, adjusting their work, their homes, their personal time to include people around them. I've been inspired by those in our congregation who serve their family members sacrificially and reach out to those in need in the hospital, in nursing homes, in places of, uh, uh, of care for those with illness or need. These are the things that James calls us to do, and they are marks of those who are responding to Jesus. Third and finally, James tells us something that seems to push perhaps on an opposite concern. He tells us that we bridle our tongue, we care for those in need, and we are unstained by the world. The Bible warns of worldliness, human systems of thought that aren't based on God. They appeal to our selfishness, they appeal to our power, they appeal to basic human impulses, but they are not godly. There are many forms of worldliness in the world around us, often in competing types and sets. There are forms of worldliness in rural settings and different forms in city settings. There are forms that are more traditional and forms that are more progressive. There are right-wing worldlinesses and left-wing worldlinesses, ways in which we're tempted to live other than as obedient followers of Jesus. In days and ages before us, our Christian fathers and mothers thought deeply and with great concern about whether they were worldly. I often fear that we've lost that category, the ability to have self-conscious reflection that we have begun to be transformed into the pattern of the world around us, not conforming to the truth that we hear in the gospel. Let me urge you, friends, to take each of these three things seriously. My guess is some of us might find one more than the other to fit our concern. And in history, some churches have done a very good job at 
being separate and unworldly even as they seem to fail to care for the needy and the vulnerable among them. Other churches and their eagerness to care for the needy have lost sight of the dangers of conformity to the patterns of the world. James doesn't give us a choice. He calls us to a broad-ranging spirituality, a true religion that is pleasing to God our Father. Third and finally today, however, we see that this is not only a picture of what pleases God, but it's a picture of thriving spirituality. When we take these things seriously, two things happen. First of all, we fail. We take these things seriously in their full broadness. Bridle your tongue, care for the needy, and don't be stained by the world. If you take just those three, and I don't think James is telling us those are only concerns. He's saying these are three representative things. If you take those three seriously and you walk through the rest of the day looking at your life, you will be absolutely convinced you need help. Bridle your tongue, care for the needy, be unstained. The first thing you're going to notice is like a mirror before you, the holy and perfect law of God will reveal the selfishness of your own heart. Some of you have given your life to care for others. Maybe it's a big part of what you do. You've taken on a care for another person, young or old, and it has become a lot of work. I think of this in part as a parent. I also spent a year working in a home for court-placed kids. And one of the things I began to realize so quickly with everyone else working with me is how incredibly selfish we all were when we were called to serve others. If you want to know the reality of sin in your life, start watching what you say, how you love others, and think about worldly patterns of influence. Friends, though this at first can be deeply discouraging, it's actually a path to thriving spirituality. Because it's there that we meet Jesus. It's there that we see how desperately we need a word of truth that calls us into hope and grace. Actually taking this stuff seriously will be the first step to a deeper dependence on Christ. Jesus said, abide in me or you will do nothing. Well, when you try to do something, you'll start to know how much you need Jesus. And how deeply you have to abide in him. The good news, however, is that abiding in Christ, we do begin to live differently. True religion is possible, not perfectly. It would never become the basis we have to earn something with God or to stand before him. But God loves us so deeply that he not only saves us, but he empowers us by his spirit to live differently, to love differently. We begin to see the blessedness of a life thriving in conformity with the perfect law of God. In my life, the things that have been most inspiring for me are the Christians around me that have loved deeply and radically, selflessly. I've seen a picture of the love of Christ in that. That's what we're meant to do. I shared in the beginning my own foolishness as a kid. I mentioned the story doesn't end there. I grew up. I saw, whether I knew it or not at the time, the law of perfect righteousness and I was convicted of my absolute need coming to Jesus in faith I began to rethink everything in my life including my relationship with my parents thankful to say that in my early 20s my relationship with my dad changed 
First of all, I was just mature enough to know that he was a lot smarter than I'd ever given him credit for, and he had an awful lot to help me with. I began to lean into that help. Some of the extravagant features of his life that bothered me before became increasingly beautiful. He talked to strangers all the time. He was so quick to care for needy people in my neighborhood in ways that as as a teenager... I didn't always appreciate. After his death three years ago, I probably reflected most on his life through thankfulness and through an increased desire that even in small ways, those things I appreciated in him might begin to take root in me. And so now from time to time when I've become maybe a bit more uh, social than normal, a bit more outgoing, when I reach out to those around me or, or try to be a little more concerned for those in need, I'll sometimes come in afterwards and say, you know what, I'm sort of channeling my dad. The things that I saw and beautiful in his life and even in small ways, by God's grace, can begin to form in me, often in, in spite of me. And friends, I think that's something of what Something of what James wants us to see here. It was Jesus who was bridled in speech, who poured himself out for the weak and the needy. When we were his enemies, he gave himself for us. And it was Jesus who on the cross offered a sacrifice unstained from the world. You will never be a perfect savior but you are being conformed into his image. When you look into the law of perfect righteousness, you are actually looking at Christ. And when you become hearers and doers, you are reflecting that in the world. And it's beautiful. Let's pray.